I'm Robert Land, and welcome to this special show looking back at some of the sports legends we lost in 2016. Boy, this past year, we said goodbye to some of the sports world's biggest characters and all-time legends. Here on Houston Sports Talk, we've had the privilege of talking to people who covered them or played for them or even knew them. It's amazing how so many of the greats cross paths with our city, and in this special podcast we'll listen back to some of our favorite anecdotes and stories from the show well let's start off with a little from my conversation with ex-houston Oilers safety bubba mcdowell on his old defensive coordinator with the oilers james david ryan of course you guys all know him as buddy ryan you were so much a part of that 93 team which centered around coach ryan and everything that was going on what was it like to play for him Oh man, it was it was a blast. I tell you, you know, just you know, something you know, it's like playing for your dad. You know, like you, you know, you got to you, you have a father. Kid have a father, and the father's out there watching you, and you don't want to disappoint him. You know, he was that kind of guy. You know, he was a player's coach. As a lot of guys use that term in the league, a player coach. And when you have those type of coaches, you know, players give they all for them. And man, you know, and, and I know a lot of people think that. He was uh, about all business, but he he did you know joke around quite a bit, you know. But at the end of the day, if you're not doing what you're supposed to do concerning that four six uh, defense, oh man, he will get on you. He don't care who you are. You know, I remember specifically we was at practice one day, uh, getting out of meetings, and we went to, we were going to do a short walk through, and we had the blitz on, and Sean Jones, I was supposed to go through the big out on my blitz and Sean Jones actually went through the B gap. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to be an athlete. So I just, you know, and made an adjustment and went out, went outside of Sean Jones. Oh man, he ripped me apart. You know, then when he, you know, when he gets mad with you, you know, he, he calls you by that name or the number, you know, get 25, get his brain blank out of there. And I'm like, buddy, I did that wasn't me. That was Sean Jones. Sean went the wrong guy. I don't care. Get him out of there. 23 and I was blaming Bishop. He said, get in there. Get him out of there. So, you know, I got out, you know, and then we finished the walkthrough. And sure enough, no, I can't let this go. So, I, as we were going into the building, and the coach went to a uh, coaching meeting, and I said, no, I can't let this go. I got to let him know that was not my fault. So, I was knocking on the door, walking. I was like, buddy, but I, listen, that was not my fault. He said, I understand. He said, no, we good? I said, yes, sir. All right, let's go get ready for practice. And that was it. Do you remember much about the, the, the punch? Were you anywhere close to all of that action oh, on the sideline? <laughs> yeah, well, I was very close. I was very close. I was, I was hurt that week. I just got hurt, and I was kind of nursing an injury that, that week, and I was supposed to play the next game, so they wanted to sit me out another, uh, another week. It all escalated like when – the week that I got hurt, we were going in halftime. It was like a minute or something left. We had got the ball back to the offense. And Buddy thinking, you know, he, he really didn't like that offense. You know, Chuck and Doug, Howard, whatever he called it. He didn't like it at all. And it was like a minute, probably a minute and ten, something like that. We got the ball back thinking that offense was going, going to uh, sit on the ball going to halftime. And sure enough, they threw, the, threw an interception like, I mean, like third play of that of that series of, of that first series after we got the ball back. Oh man, he was mad. Sure enough, then we got we went back in there. Boom! That's when I got hurt, tore my knee up, uh, meniscus at that point. And then it was like even that week later. You know, it wasn't bad. Like I said, I could have came back the following week, but they wanted to make sure everything was okay, so we was gonna sit out the following week. And sure enough, that game. Exact same situation, you know, but then got the ball back and sure enough, offense turned the ball over again with 
for like a minute or something left in the game, and oh man, that's that's and then Marcus Robinson and the other safety ended up getting hurt, and that's when it hit the fan. And I was standing right there, and, and all of a sudden I just saw a punch come across, and then all of a sudden I uh, then right behind there I saw Curtis Duncan come, you know, trying to break it up, and I'm like, wow. <laughs> Yeah, D- Duncan got in. I think was a Jeffries. Was he also in that? It, 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 he might have been the one that stopped uh, Gilbride from from actually uh, doing some damage because Gilbride was bigger than Buddy, right? He was a little bit bigger. Oh man, yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely was. Yeah, I, I think if Haywood had to jump in there, because I remember, if I remember correctly, I, I know when Curtis first jumped in there, Duncan, but he had kind of holding Buddy back a little bit, and that's when Haywood kind of jumped and then grabbed uh, Kevin Gilbride. That was Bubba McDowell, and if you missed our full conversation, you can find it in the Houston Sports Talk archives. Now, earlier this year, we lost Mr. Hockey, Gordy Howe. Outside of maybe Wayne Gretzky, there was no bigger name synonymous with the sport of hockey. Most Houston sports fans probably didn't know much about his time here in Houston playing for the World Hockey Association's Houston Arrows. Here's a bit of my conversation with the voice of the Arrows, Jerry Truppiano. On social media, you shared a story about playing crossword puzzles with Gordy, or, or he was playing crossword puzzles, and you used to sit with him as he did that. Can you share that story? Tell us a little bit more about that. I, I sat next to Gordy a lot because he, he liked to have me help him with his crossword puzzle. We're sitting in the airport in Minneapolis waiting for a flight to continue on a road trip. We were sitting there and working on this puzzle, and this lady walks up to uh, Gordy, who was an elderly lady wearing a cloth coat, and she says, excuse me, Mr. Howe. And she held the lapel of her of her uh, coat up a little bit, and it had a maple leaf pin on it. And she says, I just want to tell you that I'm a, a Canadian. Thank you, and God bless you. And she walked away. And I thought that was one of the most touching moments I've ever seen of appreciation for an athlete and what, what he meant to the fans. And it was, it was a very sweet moment. It just showed you the, the respect and, and how people felt about Gordie Howe. He was such a tough guy on the ice. You mentioned he, he, he wasn't afraid to give you an elbow. He wasn't Wayne Gretzky as a guy that kind of stayed out of the mix. But he was a, such a good guy off the ice. Did you ever see him not be in a good mood with the fans? The only time I saw that, and he had every right to do this, after the Arrows won their second championship, they beat the Quebec Nordiques in Quebec City. So we were having a team party in the team hotel after the final game of the series. I was coming back from the restroom, and there was this uh, big gentleman standing in the doorway. And I don't speak French. I don't know what he was saying, but he was yelling at the players and uh, disrupting the party. And Gordy took him by the neck and... uh, with one hand threw him against the uh, elevator doors, uh, hustling him out of the uh, party where he was not in, uh, invited. But never, no, I never saw Gordy turn down an interview request. I never saw him turn down an autograph. As a matter of fact, there was a game that they were playing, the Arrows were playing in the old arena in Ottawa, where in the first period, Gordy blocked a shot with his foot, broke his foot, left the game in the first period, went to the hospital for x-rays, was back for the third period, was standing at the end of the rink watching the action, and people saw that it was Gordie Howe, and they lined up around the circumference of of the rink getting Gordie's autograph, and he stayed there standing on a broken foot signing every autograph. And he signed every autograph. He made it a point to sign every autograph 
as Gordon Howe, and he did it with such precision, and it was always legible. He never scribbled. He, he even chastised one player, I was told one time in his later years, who uh, hurriedly signed an autograph for a youngster and rushed off. And Gordy said, no, no, you, you owe that fan respect. You sign that autograph where they know who you are. That was former Oilers, Rockets, and Astros voice Jerry Truppiano on Gordie Howe, who actually averaged 100 points over three seasons when he was in his 40s with the Arrows. Hockey's best ambassador might have been Gordie, but golf's best ambassador was absolutely Arnold Palmer. I caught up with the Houston media legend, Kenny Hand, who explained a key connection Arnie had to Houston and how Palmer played an important role in Kenny's own life. He retired competitively right here in Houston, actually at Augusta Pines in spring in 2006. It was so poignant at the time to see everybody watch him right off in the sunset as a competitive player. And I have to say, Robert, that on a personal note with Arnold, and when I was at the Houston Post as a columnist, in uh, 1987, I went to the Masters, covered the Masters for the first time, and I, I'd probably played 10 rounds of golf in my life. I wasn't really a golfer, didn't really care that much about golf. I was more interested in football, basketball, baseball, the typical stuff, uh, played tennis in high school. But I, wasn't, I, I just really didn't like golf that much, wasn't exposed to it that much. Well, they sent me to Augusta, and I covered the Masters for the first time as a columnist, and it's the first time I ever met Arnold Palmer. And just as hundreds, probably of thousands of people have said over the last 50 years, when I get introduced to Arnold, the first thing he says is, well, hello there, Kenny. But it was just the warmth and the feeling of making you important, and he did that with everybody he met. And he asked me, what I did, and I said, well, I'm a columnist at the Houston Post. I don't, it's a first golf, you know, I've covered tournaments in Houston before, but this is the first time here. And he goes, do you play? And I said, not really, Mr. Palmer. I've never been that interested in it. And he said, well, you should, you should, you should learn how to play. You'll really enjoy it. The reason I mention that is I never thought in a million years that uh, Kevin Newberry, a former colleague at the Houston Post, and I would start a golf magazine. And how is that possible that it lasts? It's lasted. Uh, we're doing our twelfth year. How how is that possible? For because of Arnold's influence in the late fifties, and then you get Tiger Woods in there, and you get Mickelson, and you build up the sport to where it never was before, and it's even made it possible for somebody like me to make a living doing a golf magazine. So the tentacles from Arnold Palmer have spread far and wide in, in, a, in a worldwide impact, not just, not just in golf, but his persona and everything he touched to try to help people in any way he could is his legacy. That was longtime sports radio host and Channel 13 Extra Points guest, Kenny Hand, on Arnold Palmer. Ah, but the host of Extra Points was none other than Bob Allen. The saddest loss in Houston sports this year for anybody that's lived in this city over the last 40-plus years was probably Bob Allen. I was fortunate enough to have a couple of conversations with him over the last few years, but didn't know him anywhere near as much as some of my friends in Houston media. One of those who knew Bob was KPRC Channel 2 Sports Director Randy McElvoy. Randy told us about interning with Allen 
at Channel 13 when Randy just started in the business. He was a guy that uh, I grew up watching, so it was that awe factor when I first got there. Like, man, I'm working for Bob Allen. This is pretty cool. But you know what? He's just a normal guy, funny guy, always had stories to tell, and really took me under his wing. I mean, when the times I was in there, he would uh, always uh, talk about you know, my goals and what I was wanting to accomplish. He gave me good advice. and you know, just taught me the ropes, I think, about the business. So, I mean, I learned a lot from a lot of people, but he was certainly one that was a influence on me early in my career, and that's almost about 30 years ago. What you see was really what you got with him, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. He shot you straight. People that don't know him really probably don't know how funny he was. I mean, he was a funny guy. Always had stories, funny stories to tell, because he, he'd seen just about everything <laughs> you know, at that point. And, and he continued to do it for many more years as well. But great communicator. Loved the city of Houston. He's from here. You know, played at, uh, or went to school at Westbury High School. I went to Bel Air, so we always talked a lot about that Bel Air and Westbury rivalry. And I uh, had a good time with that. So uh, definitely what you see is what you got out of Bob. Did you get a lot of reaction when you were out on stories with Bob? Do you remember going out with him much and, and the people's reaction to a guy that had been around for as long as he had and, and what he, how he kind of connected with the community? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was kind of a magnet for viewers out there. I mean, this, I mean, this is a, not only was Bob good at what he did, you know, he was a, pretty much a legend in this town and was. So now I still consider him a legend. He's passed away now, but uh, he's the best this city's ever had it. Yeah, you know, everywhere you went, whether I, mean, I, I oftentimes went to what I remember a lot. I think I'd go to the Astrodome a lot with him. Uh, maybe it's for an Astros. Maybe he's doing his, his live shot out there. I would go with him and help with interviews and stuff. And I'd be around him on that that part. Occasionally at an Oilers uh, event, maybe practice or something like that. The Rockets, maybe. But when he went around, people knew Bob Allen. I mean, Channel 13 for many years back then was a was a powerhouse uh, TV station. And the uh, last probably 10, 15 years, it's it changed a little bit, for sure. But during the 70s and 80s and, uh, you know, part of the 90s, I mean, Channel 13 was, uh, was a powerhouse station, and the whole team was was uh, was well-known, and Bob was certainly one of those. Randy McElvoy remembering Bob Allen so hard to believe he's gone. I'm sure Bob interviewed Baseball Hall of Famer Monty Irvin, who actually made his home in Houston for many years before he passed away early this year. Could Monty Irvin have been Jackie Robinson before Jackie Robinson? Well, listen to this portion of a conversation I had with longtime Astros broadcaster Greg Lucas. That was a guy that I believe you met, right, Greg? He's a oh, yeah. Before Branch Rickey tried to break the color barrier with Jackie Robinson, Monty was the guy. Cool Papa Bell said he should have been the first black player in the big leads. Monty said... He wasn't in good enough shape yet after his three-year military stint serving America in World War II. He still had a case of war nerves, so so he wasn't that guy. What what do you remember about meeting Monty, and and what should people know about this guy? Well, he was a very very self-effacing and modest guy, and we of course just lost him just a few weeks ago here in Houston. But his mind was with him right up to the end. He he could tell you stories. He indicated the the story you just told. Uh, he also had a little bit of an eye problem at the time, and he wasn't sure. But Branch Rickey, the Jackie Robinson story is well documented, but Jackie was not the only black player that Rickey was looking at. There was a shortstop who was not African-American, but he was black, and he was playing in Cuba that he was looking at very uh, closely. And there was, a, uh, of course, Monty. And uh, under Rickey's master plan, he wanted to have Monty go to uh, his uh, farm club in uh, 
uh, I think he had a team in Minneapolis. I'm not sure. No, that's where he ended up going with the Giants. He had another farm club. They had more than one AAA club. Uh, they had Montreal and they had uh, oh St. Paul. That was the other one, so I was kind of close. Uh, he wanted to sign Monty and have him go to St. Paul, and uh, and Jackie would have been in uh, in Montreal. But uh, as it turned out, uh, because of the reasons you mentioned, uh, he did not sign, and he went back and played in the Negro National League in 1946. Monty did, and he set all sorts of records. They had a great team. They won the championship, and he was the MVP, and I might have won the batting championship too. And so he got signed the next year by the uh, the Giants. But he had a chance uh, to have uh, been in the minor leagues at the same time as Jackie, and which one would have made the major leagues would have been determined pretty much by how they did. But uh, it would have probably been Jackie, frankly, Monty said, because he, as you, as you pointed out, he was not quite – he was released from the Army. Both were in the Army, and he was released last. And uh, he had uh, been actually in, in combat areas – and uh, he also had a little bit of an eye problem, so he wasn't really ready yet. And uh, he was concerned he wouldn't be ready yet. As it turned out, he might have been because he had such a great year uh, in the Negro League. But uh, it was an interesting sidelight that most people don't know. That was Greg Lucas remembering a true sports pioneer and a guy who broke important racial barriers. And breaking racial barriers and breaking the mold was what the biggest sports star and worldwide icon did better than anybody. I'm talking about the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali. So what's his connection to Houston? Well, we got a guy who covered Houston sports for over five decades with the Houston Post and Chronicle, Mickey Herskowitz. And he shared with us some amazing stories. Listen to this incredible portion of my conversation with Herskowitz on Muhammad Ali, the late, great champion. Well, one of the things that connects Ali to Houston is the entire Vietnam episode where he decides that he is not going to go fight those Viet Cong. That happened here. That happened in Houston. Tell, tell that story, and, and, and you were a part of that. You're absolutely right. I was actually I was there the day that Ali refused to take the historic step at the post office, which was also at that time the office for the draft board, to take the step forward to be inducted into the U.S. Army on San Jacinto Street. And I'll never forget it because there were maybe 18 to 20 kids pretty much that in that age range being inducted and pleading with Ali to come with them in the hopes that they would all wind up in the same boot camp. And he toyed with them and teased them and joked with them. And he, I mean, he was totally upbeat. There wasn't anything depressed about him. But when it came time, he called each young draft recruit's name and he stepped forward and they swore him in and they called Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, and he stood in place a guard stepped forward and put his hand on his shoulder, and they actually had handcuffs. I don't think they put them on, but let him out of the room. And I looked around, and there were some of these recruits, 18 years old, were literally crying, knowing that Ali faced maybe three to five years in prison, but wasn't going to be with them in the Army. I would occasionally catch a plane with Ali, when I'd meet him on the road, just by chance most of the time, but 
I was in and out of Chicago with the baseball team. The Astros played the Cubs, and I'd come home on my own for some reason. Maybe I had a book I was working on, and I'd stay over. At least twice, three times, I sat with Ali on the plane, and we visited all the way to Houston. I remember one time he was under enormous fire. One of the mistakes and myths that I heard repeated endlessly, and some of the commentators were reviewing Ali's history, they made it sound like he had already won the hearts of America in the 1960s with his stand against the war. And the fact is, he was probably the most hated person in the country. Maybe the most hated and maybe the most popular. But at the same time, as contradictory as that is, Cosell in a national network poll was named the most popular and the most disliked broadcaster in the country. But anyway, we were on the plane one day and nothing ever dragged Ali down. The idea of going to prison didn't bother him. He thought it'd just be a new experience. We're on the plane and it hasn't taken off from O'Hare Airport in Chicago yet. And we're chatting away and the airline hostess walked down the aisle and she didn't give him a second look. She didn't know who he was. But she walked past us in that nice, brisk, authoritative stride that airline hostesses have. And over her shoulder, without actually turning her head, just just a notch maybe, she looked out of the corner of her eye and she said to Ali and myself, fasten your seatbelts, we're about to take off. And Ali yelled after her, Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> and... The airline hostess never broke stride. Again, a little half-inch turn, and over her shoulder, she said to Ali, Superman don't need no airplane. (laughs) (laughs) Ali, Ali loved it. Anyway, later, the next time, not many months after that, I went to New York and started a sports magazine called Jock. I was going to do a cover story, and did, with Ali, about going to prison, and the cover photograph was Ali actually behind prison bars. It was such an experience. I I met him with a limousine. He he stayed, I had a suite for him for three days and nights at the St. Regis Hotel. And we, we hung out most of that time. We got Ali to do the story and it was amazing because he did it for $500. That's how broke he was. And that money wasn't for Muhammad, it was for his lawyer. The lawyer made the deal, and he wanted $500. And Ali just was glad to come and get a trip to New York. So he brought a buddy, not a girl, brought a guy friend, and they were sitting in the back. I sat up front with the driver. He was going to have three days in New York at the hotel and a free trip, all his expenses paid. And he was going to do a commercial for me for the magazine. All that and the, and the story for 500 bucks. And we are in the limo. And we're going to go right to the studio to uh, do the commercial and then check into the hotel. And I said, Champ, we've got about three hours before the commercial. I said, I can you know, drop your bags off at the hotel or go wherever you'd like. And he said, let's go through Harlem. So we have this big, long, black limousine. And we drive through Harlem, and nobody knows he's coming. I mean, there's no parade scheduled. There's no invitation gone out that Muhammad Ali is going to appear in Harlem on a certain day. But we start driving through the area, and every block or so, Ali would jump out. He ran into a barber shop, said hello to everybody, shook hands. He ran into a sandwich shop. 
and shook hands and said hello. And then he went into a grade school, an elementary school. I finally had to climb three flights of stairs to find him and get him back <laughs> into the car because it, now it's time to do the commercial. And he gets to the back seat, and I'm sitting with the, the you know the the driver, and we're chatting, and oh, he rolls down the window, and by now. It's unbelievable. The streets are lined. The sidewalks are eight deep. There are people, it's like the drums had been breaking the silence with the news that Muhammad Ali, the champion, uh, the heavyweight champion of the world, was driving through Harlem. And they came out of everywhere, buildings, offices, schools, playgrounds. I don't know where they were. They were standing in the gutters of the street. They were standing on the sidewalk. They were waving and yelling. And Ali was leaning out of the back window, waving to people. And then as we as we drove out and drove off and sped up a little bit, Ali kind of sank back into the cushion of that long, sleek limousine. And he said, Mickey, you know what those people were yelling back there? And I said, no, champ, what? He said, they were yelling, look, there go Muhammad Ali with two white chauffeurs. <laughs> and I was the other chauffeur, obviously. <laughs> that was Mickey Herskowitz remembering Muhammad Ali. Most of these are in our archives, by the way. If you haven't heard the full conversations, go check those out. And among those we lost this year, boy, what a list it was. Coaching great Pat Summit. Olympic gold medal downhiller Bill Johnson, NBA Hall of Famer Nate Thurman. Uh, there was also Ralph Bronca, who threw the pitch known as the shot heard round the world, one of the most legendary plays in Major League Baseball history. There was also, we lost longtime NFL coach Dennis Green. They are who we thought they are, and we let them off the hook. Uh, there was the tragic losses this year of Marlins pitcher Jose Fernandez, former Heisman Trophy winner, Rashan Salam, MMA star Kimbo Slice. Uh, there was the road rage deaths, both in New Orleans, of former NFL players Will Smith and Joe McKnight. We also lost broadcasting greats Joe Garagiola, Bud Collins, ESPN's John Saunders, and, of course, TNT's Craig Sager. Well, let's close out with Sager's TNT friend and colleague Ernie Johnson and this remarkable poetic tribute that Sager did for his eulogy. This is courtesy of NBA TV. If you haven't heard this yet, be prepared for laughter and tears. It's just out-and-out out perfection. Here's Ernie Johnson talking about his old friend, Craig Sager. He stood out as a newborn, his blanket magenta, with hints of turquoise, lavender, and a touch of burnt sienna. Some babies had rattles and toys of their own. Craig had a loud suit and a new microphone. He went to Northwestern, there honing his skills, where wildcat football had few wins or thrills. Those fall days in Evanston can be rather chilly when you're dressed as the mascot, freezing your willy. <clears throat> Craig would have loved that line. He got his big break working in Sarasota. Let me share with you this very true anecdote. Uh, the date April 8th, back in 74, 
Hank Aaron was knocking on the great Babe Ruth's door. Craig made the trip north to watch 715, and he did something none of us had ever seen. When Aaron connected on Al Downing's pitch, Craig ran on the field, that son of a gun. (laughs) The crowd's going nuts as Hank circles the bases, and there at home plate amid all of those faces is a guy in a trench coat that's not made to order. Yeah, that's Seggs with his Radio Shack tape recorder. You knew then and there with that move which took guts that great things awaited, no ifs, ands, or buts. He took his talents to KC and then moved again when stardom took hold as he hit CNN. A studio host and a roving reporter, he covered the country from border to border. Years at TBS followed and then TNT where His wardrobe some nights was must-not-see TV. (laughs) A paisley tie featuring diamonds was keen. A kangaroo blazer that jumped off the screen. A hand-woven belt from the bark of a willow. And shoes fashioned from a deceased armadillo. (laughs) But don't think for a moment it was just about style. If that is your thinking, you're off by a mile. He prepped for each game with meticulous flair. A pro's pro does that when he goes on the air. And that's why when Craig's cancer fight became known that there was just so much love and respect being shown. Because coaches and players all know they arrive when they stand next to Craig in the interviews live. They loved his work ethic. But in truth, at day's end, they viewed Craig as a colleague and, above all, a friend. He'd ask the tough question when it had to be done, and somehow the subject would say, that was fun. Now, working with Craig, here's one thing you should know. Did the man ever sleep? I do not believe so. (laughs) He'd go running each day and do research at night. I'm told he once went to Hooters and had a Bud Light. (laughs) The golf course always was, for Craig, a favorite destination. He took $10 million off his friends by estimation. (laughs) He won the Carmo Classic every year, was undefeated. And afterwards, in disbelief, he'd say, you think I cheated? I really, truly do believe no man enjoyed life more. That laugh, that smile, that joy we saw when when he walked in the door. And how we worship Stacy. How we love the sound of Dad. How we knew his job was one that everybody wished they had. That vibrant, thankful part of Craig was never lost or hidden even when his illness laid him low, and I'm not kidding. You'd visit him and hope to cheer him up or lift his spirit. He'd expressed his hopeful outlook and make you glad that you could hear it. There were countless chemo hours, many a sleepless night, 
that marked this unrelenting, awe-inspiring cancer fight. Then there was the profound impact that Craig Jr. had. Not once but twice, this faithful son gave life to his dad. In honesty, we weren't surprised that Craig returned to work. For all of us to see him on the sidelines was a perk. To see him interviewing Pop, Rick Kyle, Lara Ladakh, Segs was back and using every second of the clock. How that must have felt to hear the roars of fans league-wide who cheered his courage and took selfies standing by his side. I watched him work a playoff game, fly home, and right away have chemo board a flight and hit the sidelines the next day. In each NBA city, there were T-shirts, there were signs. As admiration freely flowed, arenas became shrines. It truly was miraculous, his will, his fight, his grit. It's as if he said, you're cancer, huh? Well, I don't give a darn. <laughs> the man that we reflect upon this day was just a treasure. The number of folks who he inspired, there's just no way to measure. At the ESPYs, when they got that honor name for Jimmy V, in a room of marquee players, Craig's the guy they came to see. He delivered the most eloquent and heartfelt speech that night. He displayed that, in our darkest times, one man can be a light. The line we'll all remember cut through sorrow like a knife. Time, Craig said with passion, is simply how you live your life. And so amid the tears and all the memories we cherish now, we say farewell to our friends' sags and make this humble vow. There's no way to gauge the days we have, no way to know how long. But know this, Craig, will do our best to live them sacred strong.